0: I'm going to go back just to introduce this, how I've been approaching Revelation 6. If you can get in your imagination, especially going back to Jeremiah 32, about what was written on the scroll that God the Father was holding from Revelation 5. He's holding it, and they're looking through heaven and earth trying to find someone who could open that scroll. And John says what he saw was that there was great mourning in earth and in heaven because they couldn't find anyone, until someone sees and someone announces they found someone who was capable of doing it. And of course we know that the reference is to Jesus. He said they could see him as as a lamb that had already been slain. So again, we understand that what Revelation 5 is telling us, but the big question was what was written on the scroll. And Jeremiah 32 answers that very well. What was written on the scroll was a plan of redemption. How you and I would be redeemed. What price would be paid. That was on one part of the scroll in Jeremiah 32. And the second piece was how the transfer of possession would actually occur. Well, I believe that on that scroll that God the Father was holding was a plan of redemption. And that they were looking for someone who could open it. Someone who could put that redemptive plan in place, And so I believe that the seals have to be viewed as that which was restricting the plan of redemption from being unfolded. What is it that would stand in the way of that redemptive plan? And those seals, each one represents something that would stop that redemptive plan. Well, typical history of, of those verses says that what people are talking about there is about events that have to occur before the redemptive plan can be put in place. And I would never argue with them. I just know that as I read it and studied it, as, as you have probably several times or many times, trying to navigate your way through all the different perspectives and all the different opinions about what each of those events actually is, because there's, as I shared with you a couple of weeks ago, there is a perspective that all of these things actually already occurred. There's a perspective that they're occurring right now, and there's a perspective that they're happening in the future. So you can wade through it, try to figure it out. But when I stopped and really just looked again at this, the greater perception, at least the way that I've approached it, is that if the redemptive plan is going to be full in our life, not in some future date, but that the redemptive plan is full in our life, that each one of these seals is an obstruction that keeps the fullness of the plan from being unfolded. So when I started looking at it that way, it wasn't stuff that's going to happen in the future. They are principles, truths, that have to be recognized in us before we can step now into the fullness of that plan. When we began with the white horse and the rider, again, the typical teaching of that is that that was the Antichrist. It's just odd to me that later in Revelation 19, the rider on the white horse is Jesus. So why here is it the Antichrist? It seems in Revelation 6 to me that it's still it's still Christ, it's still Jesus. And and so we know that the, the horse and what the the rider is holding always has some kind of a connection. So this rider is carrying a bow with arrows. And the truth as I had presented it that day was that that rider was Jesus. And what he's trying to tell us in a picture that I used was of of Paul on the road to Damascus, that he was pierced through in that moment with truth. That his life as a Pharisee had to be dealt with and removed before he could step forward into the redemptive plan of God. So the first picture was, what is there that God would reveal to you that is in your life that needs to be separated from you so that you can move forward into that redemptive work? And if you don't get rid of it, You'll never step into the fullness. So that was the first principle. The second one was a red horse. Again, it was, that word red is only used two times in the Bible, both in Revelation. It's a fiery red. And fire is always the need for purification. So when you begin to recognize that this rider is bringing us to a point of holiness, I'm summarizing very broadly without the details, but that this rider... Is bringing us to a place of purity and holiness before God, because unless you're willing to step into that holiness, you cannot receive the fullness of the redemptive plan. Last week was the black horse, and the rider was carrying a scale, balance. And we looked at that one, recognizing that there's a great warning in it when he says that a quart of wheat will cost a penny, three quarts of barley will cost a penny, And we talk through the symbolism of that, saying that penny was a day's wage. And the warning, that which he says that you're going to have to weigh, that's going to have to be sifted out, is the self-effort that we're trying to put in to earn and to deserve, that which can only be given of God. Because the barley and the wheat represent truth. And then the end phrase of that is be careful not to damage the oil and the wine. Don't step on those things. The oil is the anointing, the wine is revelation. Because don't let anybody speak to you or reduce the revelation of God. Don't let anyone reduce the anointing of God. So again, unless we're willing to step into the fullness of the anointing, the fullness of revelation, we will not step into the fullness of the plan as it's unfolded. So there are three of those principles that each one of them are telling us something that has to happen in our life for us to to realize the fullness of God. The horse this week is described as a pale horse. The the, the actual word is ashen. So this is the verse, Revelation 6, beginning with verse 7. uh, The fourth seal is the last of these that tell us something that has to be dealt with or gotten rid of, and then it changes. Revelation 6, beginning with verse 7. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. Again, come and be illuminated. I can understand, and I, again, I don't disagree, that each one of these can be stretched into any type of cataclysmic event that you want to assign to it. Again, I'm, I won't debate anybody on it. That's not my point. My point, again, is if this is a revelation that's designed to mean something to us now, I have to relook at these things and say, okay, what is it that allows us to bear truth and power and effect on me right now. And that's the way these have been studied. So this black horse, this ashen horse, and when he had opened the fourth seal I heard the voice of the fourth beast say come and see. And I looked and behold a pale horse and his name that set on him was death and hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. I will tell you this one would be much easier for me if I was standing here teaching it as some type of an event that was going to occur someday. I could speak of the famine, I could speak of, okay, there's going to be a time on the earth when this situation is going to come. But if I will honor what I committed to when I started this study, seek revelation for truth right now, use the symbolism, use the scripture that we already know to bring truth, Don't go outside of what we know to look at the symbolism and approach it that way. So I have tried to hold true to that. So John looked and beheld a further revelation of God's wonderful redemption by seeing this pale horse. But this one, I I can tell you, I have to really take it apart, slow down, try not to compromise the intentions from the beginning. Because the word pale comes from a Greek word... Floros. It means a pale green or something that is faintly colored. So green symbolizes life anywhere. So a greenish horse that's pale would depict what? If you would see something that's a dark green, it would be full of life. Something that was pale green, what would you assume? Barely alive. A little life, not much. Though it looks like life, it really isn't because the rider's name is death. Hades or the grave accompanies it, which would be no surprise. It would be like your pet following you somewhere, that these would go together. That which is dead has to be put away. We start right there. That which is dead has to be put away from us. It needs to be buried. So go with me, if you would, to Romans 8, verse 6. Because this scripture to me was one of those that I could go back into the scripture and get some pretty significant illumination about what this was trying to tell us. Because it says, this particular rider on this particular horse has come to bring death. What's our first trap that we're going to fall into? What's the first trap that everybody falls into when we talk about that this rider is going to come and bring death? It's hard for us to separate ourselves from the thought of physical death. This is not in any way, shape, or form, in my understanding, talking about physical death. But the rider on this pale green horse has come to bring death to something. So Romans 8, I'll begin reading with verse 5. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit mind the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. So what is it, at least possibly, that we're reading here that within the redemptive plan has to die? Our flesh. Our carnal mind has to die, or we will never step into the fullness of what God wants for us. Every one of us can admit this quite readily from the first one, that those things in my life, as Paul was talking about, because it was religion that was in his way. And until he was willing to get rid of the religion, he could not step into the fullness of the redemption. I will admit that myself. I could not step into what's happening into my life right now until I was willing to walk away from the boundaries of religion. I also, with the red horse, with the black horse, dealing with the purity, until it were willing to step into the holiness until we're willing to get rid of, of all the self-effort. Now he's saying, Please. if you're not willing to get rid of the carnal mind, the last stronghold, that which is probably going to be the last thing that we surrender to step into the fullness of God, that will be the last thing that we're going to hold on to. And he's telling us here from this scripture in Romans 8, to be carnally minded is death. That's what's going to occur. Every carnal mind is death and therefore needs to be buried. It says here that the horse's commission and the rider's commission is to the fourth part of the earth. I went two different ways on this. One was that seeing that this is the fourth, that the other three's work has been accomplished. That we've been brought to holiness. We've been brought to purity. Those areas of our life have been exposed. I could say that because it's the way it's written here, that the other three have been effective, and this is the last that's remaining. This is the fourth part, the dealing with our mind, that great stumbling block to keep us from entering into the fullness of God. The other, though, was any time we come across the number four, it's speaking of of natural things, of the things of the earth. So I don't know if I could fully answer. I just know that the commission of the horse and rider, if I stay true to the previous symbolism, I'd have to go with the fourth will represent the things of the earth. The things that come in fours, They're natural things, the four seasons and the things of nature come in the cycles of four. So the remaining victory that you and I have to have to step into that fullness is that we have to have victory by gaining power over the natural mind. I sat, as you know, in an unusual place hearing a lot of stories that come through my office. It's always interesting because I, you know, I had a couple in there today and I told them. I said, you do realize that everything you want, everything that you hope for in your marriage is within one word's reach right now. Not someday. Not some year. Well, could your marriage be what you want? Everything you want your marriage to be is within your reach right now. God is not holding it back. What's keeping them? What's keeping us from stepping into that right now? It's the way that our minds have been trained to think about ourselves, about the situation, about the person that we're looking at, the great stumbling block that we can't seem to gain control over is what our mind thinks, and so we live in some poverty, in some small proportion of what God intends for us, simply because my mind has such a power over the choices that I make every day and what I'm willing to receive of God. Again, that's why Shelley was saying, it was so profound for me to recognize that Jesus was dealing with the woman's rejection and not her sin because he knew that the greater obstacle of receiving what he was willing to give her was not the sin he was overcoming by the drink, it was her perception of herself. And he was using every means to erase everything that she had ever been told. He was telling her, you're worth it. You're worth my time. You're worth my voice. You're worth this moment. You're worth this truth. You're worth this drink. You're worth this salvation. And he's saying, I don't care what any other voice has ever told you. I don't care what any man has ever done to you. I'm erasing it in this moment. Everyone who came to Jesus, every blind person, every lame person, every person with leprosy, when they came to Jesus, they left as if that former stuff had never ever been true, had never occurred. They didn't walk away from Jesus with a plan on how to get better. I don't want to send somebody out of my office with a plan on how to change your actions, how to change your behaviors, how to make this work better. We have to do some short-term stuff sometimes to make it possible. I have no desire to send somebody out of my office with a plan on how to recover. Because if we bring the power of God into this moment, they can walk away from this story as if that old stuff had never occurred. And I want to tell you, most of us sitting in this room are still dragging garbage from behind us and not able to step into something right in front of us because of that. And the question is, how long are we going to do it? Because He's telling us right here, until we're willing, ready... To let that stuff die and be buried, we're always going to live in some marginal version of what he has planned for us. Not his choice. Our choice. You know, we talked about two weeks ago when Jesus says, do you want to be whole? What did he immediately come back with? His story. Told hundreds of times probably. Well, yeah, but this is what happens every time. He tells his story. And Strange it is to compare that to the woman at the well who had an equally dramatic story. Run out of money, ran out of doctors, ran out of hope, ran out of friends, ran out of religion. Nothing has helped me. She could have stood and told him all those things and said, could you help me? No, her story had been so changed that she just knew that if I can reach the hem of his garment, then my life will be different. She had a new story. I guarantee you some of us are wearing those old ones out. We know what we're talking about. We're wearing the old story out, telling it. It justifies. Everybody knows it's true. There's not a single fact that we repeat that's not true. The question is, when are we going to have the nerve to find a new story? To believe what she believed, that if I can actually get to him, he will do according to the new story. So the remaining victory out of these four is over the natural, I would probably say more correctly, the carnal mind. What's the difference? A natural mind, typically in the Bible, is one of the perspective of somebody that is lost. They function from the flesh. They function from what their body requires. They function from what their soul can think and feel. That's the natural mind. Responding to those things of the flesh. The carnal mind, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and other places, reflects more the mind of somebody who is saved, but functions as if they weren't. That their decision-making was as if they had never had that encounter. So when you recognize what is it that you and I as believers are trying to get over that are actually stepping into the fullness of the regenerative plan, the fullness of redemption, is that we have to be able to get over the carnal mind. The mind that says, I am a believer, but I keep thinking as according to the flesh. It will not be fully complete until that pale horse and rider have accomplished their work. Their work is the final blow to our mind's control over us. It's the most difficult one to overcome. But God knows exactly how to achieve its death. And this is the part we don't like. What does it say it's going to take to kill that natural mind? And we'll go back to Scripture. It says they were given sword, they were given hunger, and death. All of those things are going to be used to bring about that death. I jokingly say sometimes, I know this came from Graham Cook, that that God and Satan have one thing in common. They're both trying to kill us. They're very different reasons, but God is determined to kill you. He's very determined so that there's none of you left. This doesn't diminish your personality. What it actually does is to say the true me is the one that God wrote about. The true me is the one that God designed. The true me is the one that gets a star in this screenplay that God wrote that stars me, that allows me to live in the fullness of his perfect will. That is who I'm supposed to be. We say who I am is my opinion. I have that right to express me. Well, the true you is as God designed, not as you have formed it in your own head. So when we recognize that what God is trying to do, he's trying to kill you. He's trying to kill me. So that everything about me reflects him. I always found it entertaining to find, I, don't know, I guess they're bloopers. They're just errors. And I think they're fascinating. You know, uh, one of the, the more blatant ones is in the movie Gladiator, starring Russell Crowe. Because there's a scene there, they're in this fight, where a chariot turns over. You can see the air cylinder and all the piping in the back of that chariot that makes the thing flip over. Why do I like seeing that? It's because there's something in the story that doesn't fit. In the movie Pretty Woman, there's a, a scene where Julia Roberts is holding a pancake. She picks up a round pancake and she's holding it. And it cuts away from her and when she cuts back, she's holding something else. She's holding a piece of toast. I like finding them. As matter of fact, I watch and I'll back to something, and say, Oh, did, did y'all see that? Just something I catch in my mind. There's a person assigned to the movie. And their sole purpose is to cause agreement from scene to scene to scene, to make sure that it flows without these errors. Well, you have somebody highly paid that does that for you as well. Somebody that's making sure that your life is telling a story that looks like him, and there's not anything in your life that looks like something that's out of place. If you're seeing me, you're seeing the error. If you're seeing God and his story, the fullness of him, if you see that, you're seeing the true movie. Why is that? If I blow up a balloon with the air out of my lungs, and I hold the balloon out like this, what's going to happen to it when I let go of it? It's going to drop. Why? Because that balloon takes on the nature of what was put in it. What if I fill it with helium, and I'm holding it out like this, and I turn it loose? It's going to rise. Why? Because it takes on the nature of that which is put in it. What happens when the Holy Spirit is put in us? We're supposed to take on the nature and so demonstrate by the outward surface what was put in us. We're supposed to look like him. The expression of our life takes on something supernatural because of who lives in us. So we know this. This is standard scriptural stuff. Death is a standard term used throughout the scripture to describe an end to that which must end to make room for that which has to continue. So death always speaks of the end of sin. The end of rebellion, the end of self-centeredness, death always pictures it. But it always has to die to make room for life itself. It's always a story. So if we're reading in this fourth seal about the death of something, why would death of the carnal mind be necessary? What happens when something dies? Something can come to life. Something can take its place. So in Hebrews 2.14, we read that Christ himself, Had to die, this is the scripture, through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. By death, Jesus rendered powerless him who had the power of death. He took the power of death away from Satan by death. When I read that, as strange as this fourth seal sounds, I find it to hold true with the scripture itself. I want you to go with me to Romans 6. I'm going to read a longer passage Romans 6, beginning with verse 2. God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Think about that. God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin, speaking of believers, live any longer therein? If that's going to be said here, what can you tell is always the heart of God? If we as his children have something in us that is still not right, what is his expectation That it cannot live any longer. Verse 3. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Please notice from this. This is kind of chase a quick rabbit. But please notice we weren't baptized into the church. We were baptized into Christ. Immersed in him. What does that mean? It means at our baptism we didn't get something. He got something. He got a new set of hands to work with. He got a new mouth to speak with. He got new feet to go with. He got a new heart to love with. We got salvation. He got us. We were baptized into Christ. If that ever settles on us, it will be very, very life-changing. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was, raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. You want to know why we immerse? What would happen if we left somebody under there? They would die. It's not symbolic. We're pulling them out of a place of certain death into a place of full life. We are not can't sprinkle and do that. I'd have to sprinkle a long time to get somebody to drown from the sprinkling. But I promise you, you immerse somebody. You're bringing them out of certain death into the certainty of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dies no more, death has no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he lives, he lives unto God. Likewise reckon you also yourselves to be dead, indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. So when I look at the fourth seal and the ashen or pale horse with a rider whose name is death, if we think that they are talking about physical death, then we're going to come to some kind of a cataclysmic event where there's going to be great death on the earth. But when we recognize, if we will just give ourselves to go back to the scripture and talk about the symbolism of death and how often it comes, it is the reality of what has to die So that something can live. The last stronghold for each one of us. Once holiness is found. That purity is found. That we have found that balance. That we talked about last week. When we've discovered that. learned how to walk in that newness of life. And the last stronghold for all of us. Is our mind. Man we have been taught throughout the scriptures. Take captive those thoughts. The best illustration I ever heard. Was if you look at an hourglass. The stuff that's in the top making its way to the bottom. What would happen if you took that bottleneck out? It would just fall. That which is at the top could be immediately received in the bottom. What in our lives is the bottleneck? It's our mind. Our limitation is created right there. And if we could expand it, the flow of what comes to us changes so quickly. I had someone in my office recently, and just over the period of a week, The Lord had done some things that were so significant that great healing had come from years and years of problems. And it was so strange because when that dam that had been built in that moment of hurt, when that dam that got so quickly built in that moment of trauma, not even traumas where somebody had hurt them, but because of death or because of divorce or because something had happened that had effect on them, that they stopped right there time kind of stopped right there their life began to be built around it, and you realize how many things in our life are stopped held or put on pause because of something that happened and we don't want to move forward but guess what happens what builds up behind that down the blessings of God and it was amazing to watch when that thing fell how fast the blessings came they were in my office blown away at how fast the blessings had started to come What's the dynamic of that? What built the dam? We've read the scriptures not too long ago. The word of God is good for pulling down strongholds. They're places that we built in our mind for Satan to live. We have to build them. We have to maintain them. We have to keep them painted. We have to polish them and keep them neat so that Satan will have a comfortable place to live. A stronghold built in our mind. What happens when they get tore down? That which was held behind them suddenly has a place to go, because our mind was the limitation in the first place. And it was so amazing to watch that flood happen. And there's really no limit on where those blessings come. The time of our life consumed whatever that dam that was built, the life consumed by it, it's amazing how much we surrender to that moment. How much of our life, our perspective actually stopped in that moment. I wish everybody had a meter on their forehead that would say, how much of my life has been wasted by an old hurt or an old thought or an old moment that I couldn't get over? How much of my life was spent on that particular moment? And God's saying, if we could ever get rid of it, knock it down. What I have waiting behind it, because he won't ever take those blessings away. We stop them simply by our mind. So the great determination of this horseman On this pale horse is evident in the enemies that God will use to work death on the carnal mind. This is the stuff that makes Christians terribly uncomfortable. He says, famine and pestilence. What does that look like in the Christian life? Ever made the comment, I seem like I'm in a dry season? Ever feel like you're hungry and you can't get fed? What's God doing in those moments? What if those moments as described here, are designed by God on your behalf. He says, starving you to death. Why? Because what will hunger do? Why does he teach us to fast? What's it about? It always brings us into intimacy. He brings us into something else. So it shouldn't be a surprise what he uses. Every one of us could, could, ha- could share a testimony of a difficulty that we went through. That when we were going through it, we knew definitely that it was Satan who was attacking us only to realize that the outcome of it was so indicative of the fact that it had to be God who did it. It had to be God who took us through that season, because coming out of that season, I'm not further away from God, I'm closer to Him. When I see that, I know that it had to be the hand of God. I never, ever want to go back to that season of depression that I went through years and years and years ago. But as hard as this is coming out of my mouth, I wouldn't go back and erase it either. Because what happened in me coming out of that, I could not have learned without it. What my mind would think, the lack of compassion that I had, was simply erased in that moment. I make this joke in my office often. I tell people in the counseling session, if you make me cry, then I charge double. And someone this morning made me cry. So I'm coming out of the office, just wiping tears. The tears are the result of the depression. That was one of the blessings that I was left with was that the tears come so easily. I don't know why, but it left me so tender-hearted. I mean, I have trouble watching commercials on TV. It's awful. It was really bad when the kids were in high school because they'd hear me sniff and it'd all do, do like this. Like, come on, Dad, you've got to be kidding. They're buying a refrigerator. <laughs> be be I have movies on the DVR and I'll just watch part of them every now and then. I'll watch the part. It makes me cry every time. When Secretary makes a round of that track and she starts quoting that scripture from Job, man, you've got to get ready because I must always hope nobody's in the room because it's, it's coming. We need to have a hunger for Christ that's only satisfied with an intimate relationship with him, not merely messages that we heard about him. He is the truth and only the truth can satisfy him. First 1 Corinthians 15, verse 30. He says, and why stand we in jeopardy every hour? I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus. Remember what's said in the scripture? The beasts were fought. Paul says, I fought beasts at Ephesus. He's talking about people whose religion and theory and doctrines were wrong. It was just challenging him to his faith. He likened them to wild beasts. What advantage in me, if the dead rise not, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow again we die. We're talking about those who come against the truth. Just like in the last one, remember, it says, be careful not to damage the oil and don't damage the wine. If someone has the nerve and will dare, stand and reduce the Spirit of God. As a pastor, as a teacher, as a church member. If we speak against that which can clearly be established of God, you're damaging, and he says, don't do it. Don't damage the anointing. Don't damage what God's planning to do. Don't damage the wine. Don't damage the revelation. Man, I don't know of a place in the Bible that tells us greater. Be very, very careful what you stand against. We are people who erase the wrong things of this earth, not because we stand against them. We erase them because of what we stand for. Makes sense? We have to be careful when we stand against things. Because God says, if you will stand against... I've used this illustration a lot. You know, it's interesting, in the Acts of Barnabas, a book that's written exactly like the rest of the Scripture. There's a book called the Didache, which is the writings of the disciples. And in both of those documents it says, Thou shalt not kill a fetus by abortion. Why didn't that make the Scripture... Why didn't that make this canonized Bible if it was such a plain teaching in that day, written by Barnabas, written by the disciples, that this was a wrong thing? Why didn't it make the Bible? Because I would have loved for it to say, don't do it. Because I can point to it and tell the world, see, you're not supposed to. Why isn't it in there? Because he, he knows we'll never get rid of it by making a rule to us to get rid of it. The only way to get rid of it is by being the love that God has placed in us. That's the way you get rid of it. Not what you're against, but what you are. It's what God has done and established us. He tells us that we are going to be in these battles against people who are determined to reduce Him into something that can be controlled. He said, don't do it. You will never enter into the fullness of what I want if you're determined to reduce Him in any way. As these troubles are experienced, Christians are to know that this is happening because the Lamb is breaking the seal. He's working out His purpose in our lives in the midst of a world of sin. He's changing us into His image. As His will is being worked out in our lives, we begin to understand the purpose of all the difficulties that we encounter when the scroll is open and unfolded because we'll recognize that every one of these things that happened to us every time was designed to prepare us to step into something greater and not just trouble that we we're facing. The Lamb is in charge. These principles, if we'll accept them, will unlock the mystery of God's dealing with us. Why does he deal with us the way he does? These four seals tell us why God deals with us the way that he does. Every dealing designed to bring us into something fuller. Again, this was the amazing teaching that God showed me. It was him, not me. The amazing teaching of Sunday morning. I've had several people talk to me about the impact of that teaching. The reality of the purpose of the Lord's Supper. So far beyond what I'd ever comprehended. That as we stood here on Sunday morning. Recognizing that it was the rehearsal dinner for a wedding that's coming tomorrow. As I came from the back. Recognizing what this moment really was. That I was walking as if I were walking into his presence. Right now we take the bread and we take the cup. This is his body until he comes. But boy, when we're holding it, we need to recognize that what I have just done is going to someday, these things are going to be replaced with the person. And he says, I want you to rehearse it. I want you to know. I want you to know how to walk into my presence. I want you to know how to greet me in that moment. Because right now we can only do it in the spirit. So here he he came to meet us spiritually. He said, but tomorrow it won't be a rehearsal. Tomorrow, it'll be face to face. Change the Lord's Supper for me. I will never take it the same way again. Why does he say examine yourself? Make sure there's nothing against somebody else. If you're going to be that bride dressed in that white, in the purity of it, one thing that would stand out quickly would be the black spot when you held something against somebody else. He's saying, I want you to be ready. Everything, be ready. We will continue in this next Wednesday night. We'll look at the fifth seal. Continue from there. Lord, thank you tonight for your teaching, for the way that you challenge us, for the perspective that you give. Lord, it's just, uh, it's very overwhelming to me. Such a blessing to be able to look at this again, to look at it new, and let you speak to us about right now. And I pray, Lord, that you would find us always committed each day to die to ourselves, die to our flesh, die to that carnal mind, So that we could, by our spirit, live in agreement with you, hear you, hear you better, see more and know more, receive more, that we might share more with others, to share you with others. Lord, thank you again for this teaching and how it's unfolding in front of us. We know that it's you. We know it's not us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.